Welcome to the ludicrously specific internet-based audio podcast that focuses on feature-length film entertainment. I'm Doug, and my second favorite Stuart Gordon film is Stuck. Uh, I'm Steve, and my second favorite Stuart Gordon film is Robot Jocks. I'm Darren, and my second favorite Stuart Gordon film is Space Truckers. Wow, I like it. None of us talked about the three films that we're uh, watching today, (laughs) which is... uh, Doubly damning because uh, I think we didn't say our favorite because it would have been Reanimator for all three of us. Uh, is that correct? This is, true. this is true. I would say so. Yes, definitely. And if you'd say anything else about internet, you're wrong. Uh, it is the best film. <laughs> That's right. If the internet is no place for discussion. <laughs> we're right. Accept it. <laughs> right. Except we're discussing this and it's being broadcast over the internet. Ooh. Um... <laughs> My Twitter account is... <laughs> <laughs> so um we uh as we noted last time on our last quarantine edition we're going to talk about three of the uh hp lovecraft adaptations of Stuart gordon today um but before we get into that um some of us more than others have been taking advantage of this lockdown to watch even more ludicrously voluminous quantities of film than normal um some of us have been working consistently and some of us have been working moderately consistently and and one um, of us has not been working at all but i am a house husband for the next two weeks so um i think i've got a hard job too yes yes and how many um films have you watched during that house husbanding uh 26 26 well there you go um so so skeet maybe that means you can start with uh what have your top three uh quarantine watches been uh, well, it is uh, one that I have been meaning to see for quite a while and finally had the time. It's a movie called The Take uh, from 1974, uh, a rare starring role for Billy Dee Williams. And oh, right. It is possibly one of the most cynical 1970s cop movies that you can see. And as we've That must a lot be of saying films, something. <laughs> <laughs> we've watched Italian cop movies that weren't the cynical. So the tagline for this one uh, is meet the brother with a badge dot 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 on the take who takes on the mob and wins both ways. And oh, OK, well, it's a happy film then. It kind of it is. It's basically Billy Lee Williams plays a, a corrupt cop in a decade full of corrupt cops. And it is 1970s police work. There's intimidation of witnesses. There's basically threats of violence to witnesses. There's money being handed out left, right, and center. And you kind of know at the end of this film, the bad guys, some of them aren't going to get away with it. Some of them are going to get away with it. I won't say too much about it, but it is worth hunting down. It was was quite a... Who directed it? It was directed by Robert Hartford Davis, uh, who has... He did other movies like uh, Black Gun, uh, Bloodsuckers... Uh, corruption, Peter Cushing one that we oh uh, right, I know wow. yeah yeah corruption that we saw that a couple of years back I think uh, and really enjoyed that one so but it's, um, what's... it's... Oh. Uh, I was just going to ask with Billy D Williams I've just realized I've never seen any of his pre Lando Calrissian work um, and so I don't really know how that fits in with his like his seventies uh, persona it's it's similar basically it feels like watching that and then seeing him as Lando he's He's basically almost playing the same sort of part. He's very, very confident. He doesn't take it's a lot just of eating grin type thing. Is he's in it is for himself? Yeah, a lot of that. And he, he I'm surprised he didn't do a lot more leading roles in sort of black exploitation because he he really does do a really good job in this movie. He's he's fantastic in the part. 
And as I say, you can tell it's a sort of movie where he's he's the the hero, but it's not really a movie with heroes. He's only a hero because you know he's playing both the cops and and the um, the, the mob against each other. It's kind of almost what's the movie? Is it Zatochi? Am I thinking of or Yojimbo? Oh, Yojimbo. Yojimbo. Yeah. Yojimbo. That's the one I'm thinking of. Kind of like that, but in you know with flares and large guns. <laughs> Well, that sounds great. Let's uh, let's watch that one next. That's... I think. <laughs> well, chalk that down. I'm, I'm pretty sure I can get you a copy of that one to have a look at uh, once we if can actually get know. three uh, films starring uh, side actors in Star Wars and '70s exploitation films. I think that might be uh, fit our remit. Oh, if Alec Guinness did a, a an exploitation film in the '70s, then my God, I need to see that movie. I think everyone. I think James Earl Jones shouldn't be hard. Oh, definitely. Yeah, well, he's, he was in some plenty of uh, black exploitation films, so we could we could do this. So uh, we'll put that. Alan Guinness right. is working for the man. <laughs> <laughs> shall we go in a circle, or shall we just uh, exhaust what your uh, vast repertoire first? Oh, I'll exhaust for me because my next one was exhausting, um, <laughs> and I live tweeted this uh, to you know a lot of people saying you sick, twisted, sad man. Thank you for taking the bullet. I live tweeted cats. <laughs> you did. You fucking did. I did. And <laughs> it was an experience. Um, an experience sober. I might. Mostly. Were you sober to I start, start with? I started off lit- sober. I did not end sober. Uh, <laughs> I had up the nice glass of glass of Gewurztraminer, and I put on cats, and I had a glass of scotch about twenty-five minutes into it, and I had about three more scotches before it finished. And it's not that long a movie. It is in fucking sane. It's, and you've just seen the musical. Hmm, sorry? Have you seen the musical before? Yeah, no. I have years ago, very many years ago in Auckland. Uh, and I remember it didn't have a lot of plot and the songs were good. And there was, you know, some, it was okay. I, it wasn't right. my favorite music I've ever seen. But this one takes all the, the songs and beats them until they scream. They basically, they either turn everything into a massive show-stopping musical number even for the most disposable song, or they take the show-stopping musical number of memories and they kill it. And I'm sorry, Jennifer Hudson, you wrecked that. She sings it twice. The first time, it's forgettable. It's almost what was there. And the second time, she sings it like she's doing the national anthem at the Super Bowl and the orchestra and her are fighting the whole way. And I like musicals. I love musicals. I watched, watched about at least three musicals this, uh, this lockdown. And this... Yeah, Ray Winstone sings. <laughs> no, he doesn't. He doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't. He it's it's an argument. It's an argument to say that he sings. <laughs> it's <laughs> it the most bonkers. sound escapes from his windpipe. Kind of a I'm Ray Winstone, and I'm going to sing you a song. I sing you a song. <laughs> Bye, and he disappears from the movie for the rest of it. It's just. How much did you get paid for that, Ray? And please donate that to a charity of your choice. <laughs> Do you simple. think him and Pierce Brosnan should go on the road together? It's, uh... <laughs> I, w- I would not pay to see that. <laughs> but it's, it's, uh, are you looking forward to the butthole edition, Skeets? Oh, they released the butthole cut. Oh, just, just sign me up to delete that. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is... is it worth watching for Schadenfreude? Oh, it is worth watching if you really want to confuse yourself for a little while. Um, it is, it's just, I mean, there's, there's so many questions that came out. I've, I've 
live tweeted a lot of films since I started the the B movie post uh, poster uh, Twitter account. But I have sorry never... to interrupt there, Skeets. But the main question must be why? Question mark? What? Question mark? Question mark? Question mark? Question mark? Question Everyone mark? Everyone my question started like that. Why? Why is Cat <laughs> but all the others are naked? Why is Ray Winston singing? What is Ian McKellen doing singing a song for an hour and a half? He just his song kept going and going and going. Who the hell got Dame Judy Dench to dress up in a cat suit? And the money, the money got her to dress up in a in a cat suit. I'm sure. It's it's just the it's Queen a Mother wrong decision. <laughs> it's yeah, I I don't understand cats. It's the, some of the songs Taylor Swift is and I've always heard this is the best thing in the film because she knows she's in a music video and all everyone everyone else thinks they're on stage performing for a huge audience and they're really going for it and she just does a a bizarre music video and it's fantastic and then we go back to the crap so is it worth watching once yes um don't do it sober you have at least six people in the room because I had you know a good amount of people on Twitter egging me on and um yeah Definitely have a few drinks beforehand and during because I, uh, you know, drink responsibly unless you're watching cats. That's what I know. <laughs> well, I know that the Hollywood's been doing their um, Rocky Horror Picture Show esque screenings of it, and I'm, I missed it in its initial run, um, but I might just have to join in the fun at one of those screenings because I don't right. think I could make it through on my own. Oh, I think it's it'd be worth a hate watch. <laughs> or a confused watch is, <laughs> this is your reminder that skate still hasn't seen raging bull no i did actually have that on my list to watch and i ended up watching um things like johnny dangerously and uh, the mole people and uh, zero hour instead so those those are How's not johnny ones. dangerously hold up i i remember liking it as a kid i, re- I still remember the the torch song about eating dangerously and all that. <laughs> it it but, held up. I showed it to my kid uh, who's eleven, and I forgot just how much smutty sexual innuendo is in that film. But he seemed to enjoy it. I, 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 I haven't seen that for ages, and I feel like such a fagin ice hole. It's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yep, you don't watch it. You're a cork sucker, I frankly. So. <laughs> uh, but that was still a lot of fun. Um, uh, I tried educating my son on a couple of things. I showed him that. I showed him Cooties, which he loves zombie comedies, so he loved Cooties. Um, and I showed him Speed to educate him on the 90s action genre. And did you we showed him that couldn't slow down as well? Uh, I did show him the poster for that. Someone tweeted me that going, is it a sequel to this? And, yep, that's the one. <laughs> but my third favorite film this time around out of the 26, I think, was probably another musical. It was West Side Story which was ah. probably one of the first things I watched when I got myself back into, I've got to start watching some films. I'm going, you know, a little bit stir crazy here. And West Side Story is a classic musical. It is phenomenal dancing. It is very, once again, it's, I mean, it's Romeo and Juliet, of course. If anyone hasn't seen West Side Story, it is literally Romeo and Juliet with New York street gangs. And Fun fact, I haven't seen Romeo and, uh, I haven't seen West Side Story. I have story. seen Romeo that, and Juliet. That is, definitely worth uh, uh viewing because it is it's got some real show-stopping numbers in that one that are meant to be show-stopping numbers i've seen west side story on stage i think back at the old um his majesty theater which is now long gone uh which is one of our bigger theaters i think that used to uh, do uh live stage shows uh, back in the 80s and i still remember that to this day how good that was definitely all i can say about west side story is if you haven't seen it and you got two and a half hours uh, put aside go for it it's um it is holds up incredibly well 
Oh, that's excellent. I, I tell you what, Skeets, it's um, maybe we should do some extra homework and watch Raging Bull because I haven't seen it either. Ah, and um, so you you watch it this week. <laughs> I'll watch it this week, and then uh, and then when we come to our next recording, we'll uh, report back on our view. I will. I will pencil that in. I'll, I'll cancel everything I was going to do tomorrow. Done. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's easy. Uh, well, I suppose um, I've uh, once again interrupted myself into being able to talk some more. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, how painful for you! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I've I've uh, I watched a, a fair few films. That I've got a lot of movies backed up on media, and so I've uh, chose a sort of a random version, a uh, a blind man's version, where I just scroll through what I've got and then press start and end up watching that film. And um, it's uh, has uncovered some beauties and then some not so beauty so uh, not part of the the three list but i do have to mention it because it's just a great title is oh dad poor dad mama's hung you in the closet and i feel so sad I, so, i'm familiar with like the title great. and that's all i've ever known of that film oh, i assume it doesn't live up to it it, it really How doesn't it? um <laughs> rosalind russell in there robert morse Barbara Harris, Hugh Griffith, and Jonathan Winters. And Barbara Harris is great, and she's probably the one funny bit throughout the movie, but it's, no, no, I, I don't recommend it. <laughs> you did but, send me the theme song, which uh, definitely re must redeem it briefly, because that's a fantastic, terrible theme song that literally sings, Oh Dad, Oh Dad, Mama's Hanging in the Closet, and I'm Feeling So Bad, is the opening. Yes. Absolutely, but the brilliant. great fact is it's the choir of children singing that song. <laughs> it, it is wonderful, and I'm glad you sent that to me. I won't watch the movie, but I'll definitely listen to that song, and I'll repeat. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the top randomizers uh, was a, a Samuel Fuller film, The Crimson Kimono. And I, I have it, not heard of it's um, I recommend this highly. It is. Is it set in Japan? It's um, actually set in Little Japan in America, I believe. Okay. I've seen a couple of Fuller's in um, House of Bamboos in Japan, and Shot Corridor has some Japanese footage, and I like him a lot. But I haven't seen Crimson Kimono. It's it's really good. It is a um, it's a cop movie. It's uh, you've got a um, a white American and a Japanese American, played by um, uh, is, I think it's Tagawa, the uh, the guy who um, owns the uh, the towers in Die Hard. Oh wow! So, yep. So he's the he's the lead in this, and it's uh, I think it's made in the fifties. I'm just trying to find something about it, um, but it's a, a very very cool film about a. Uh, a, a stripper is murdered, and these two guys are trying to find find out who did it. They um, both fall for the same expert witness, who's a, um, and it uh, just gets uh, more and more interesting from there. It, it becomes a much more about the interracial love story, and it's really, it's a very very cool film. It's got a, it's. Um, has a nice sort of gritty realism that Samuel Fuller brought to a lot mm. of his movies. 
So I, I highly recommend you get hold of that. That's, I believe the indicator put that out in a, in a beautiful big box set of Samuel Fuller movies. I actually have an earlier um, Columbia DVD Fuller box set that I'm slowly working my way through that has a lot of films that he wrote and then uh, his first couple uh, directing for Columbia. And I think Crimson Kimono is on there, so I might prioritize that. The early ones in that set are a bit turgid, so it's that kind of thing when you get a big chronological set, it's like, do I trudge through all these early ones or do I cherry pick the best titles and then like sit there and be like, oh, now I've got four other films in that set that I should watch. <laughs> Plus the 400 other movies that you must watch as well. So uh, oh, yes. your regular collection. So yeah, these, these days there's so much content around. I mean, once we start going into a back catalog as well, you got to pick and choose sometimes, I think. Mm, yeah, it's, um, there was, um, I'm a bit torn on the second one because it's a film I watched that I know that apparently is not meant to be very good and I really kind of liked it and I don't know why. It's a film called The Bat People. Ah, I have seen The Bat People. The uh, tagline, after the sun has set and the night wind has died, comes the hour of The Bat People. <laughs> the reason it's considered not so good is it featured on Mystery Science Theatre 3000. Whenever that happens, uh, it immediately sinks into the bottom 100 of the Internet Movie Database, no matter how good or bad it was. It was an uh, automatic knee-jerk reaction that all the fans went, We should oh, make that crap. a uh, topic, actually. That's maybe the top three um, films that have been unjustly sabotaged by MST3K. <laughs> that's a in, good come idea. In, come into Silent Earth, because that's not actually that bad. So. <laughs> and we could discuss Mitchell, the... Uh... My, 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 my Mitchell. <laughs> I've but never yeah. actually seen any MST3K, so um, oh, wow. and as soon as you guys start bantering about it, I'll just sit here quietly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to send you my old VHS tapes that I actually traded off stuff with a guy in America and got NTSC videotapes sent that I had to then convert at a great cost to watch Mystery Science uh, back in the 90s. So uh, I've been on that bandwagon for quite some time. I've always loved it, so... <laughs> Whatever you think of um, MST3K or Mystery Science Theatre 3000, it's um, it did bring back to the public eye Manos Hands of Fate. Why? <laughs> oh, I love that movie. It's uh, but that's not what I'm discussing. Let's get back no, to the uh, back to the bad so people. I just want to do a shout out to Torgo in case my brother's listening because we watched Manos <laughs> together, and when Torgo like moved his way across screen in his inimitable um, dance <laughs> shuffle. He started singing, I've got the moves like Torgo, got the moves like Torgo. And, uh, and that has become a lifetime uh, familial and joke now. Uh, obviously a very specific one, but <laughs> nonetheless. Uh, I look after the house while the master is away. <laughs> so bat people anyway it, what it, we, we haven't discussed <laughs> yeah. what it is yeah bat people it's um it's about a um a guy who a scientist who studies bats for some sciency reason and um he gets uh, bit by a bat and starts to uh, slowly turn into one um, but it's it's really a, a, again it's this is another one where it's really more about the love story between him and his wife, and um, and there's the uh, the sheriff who is um, linking 
the um, the scientist to uh, these people's deaths, but the uh, the sheriff might not be as nice as all that. And it's um, it's it's actually a pretty cool film. The the makeup is not good when he finally goes full bat. It's not good. And unfortunately, the title is a little bit of a spoiler because it's called The Bat People. And then for 80 minutes focuses on one person turning into a bat. Uh, so, or a bat person. It's, uh, well, we won't use the word Batman because I think that's got a trademark attached to it. <laughs> we might do. Bat person's the gender neutral version of it. So. <laughs> no, 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 so, no, no, no. Bat person. <laughs> but it's actually i i really quite dug it it's uh, quite a cool little film and um definitely worth more attention than uh, what mst3k threw at it or i could be completely wrong and it's a piece of shit but i liked it so i'll i'll stand by that tentatively it's um so that's the second one and then uh Third, I'm trying to. It's I've seen quite a few horrors and things, but uh, I uh, watched Mischief, which is a um, a great a, a great wee film. I don't know if you uh, know Not this one. It's, Not uh, jumping out at me, no. No, well, this is um, it's set. I'll need to go to an IMDb to give you some idea on this one. So. It's uh, set in the 60s. It um, has Kelly Preston as a, as a lead in, um, in all her finery and unfinery. It's, um, and it's a, it's a coming-of-age film. It's one I definitely recommend because I don't believe it's all that easy to find. Now, so the uh, synopsis, it's 1956. Obsessed with the hottest girl in class, a gawky high school student takes a crash course in teenage coolness from his motorcycle rebel neighbor under the watchful eye of the eternal symbol of teenage rebellion, James Dean. I've seen this. I have. It's a very cool film. I've seen it, but it was on television, I don't know when. We're talking 20-plus years ago. 20, yeah, some, sometime in the 90s, probably. And that that synopsis now jumps out at me, yes. It's Catherine Mary Stewart's in there, Kelly Preston, uh, Jamie Gertz. It's um, Terry O'Quinn plays uh, the, uh, the, the neighbor's um, uh, abusive father. It's um, it's a very very cool film. It's what it most people would turn to this movie for the the knowledge that Kelly Preston is very very naked in the movie. But uh, it's actually a stronger film than just that. It doesn't have to uh, it doesn't have to rest its foundation on Kelly Preston's tits. It right. uh, classic as yeah, many of us would like to rest our foundation. I'm going to stop that right <laughs> oh, there. Oh, okay. Back See, away, back away. I, That's I not a foundation. <laughs> <laughs> but it's um, it's really turns into a um, it's actually I I'm I've kind of grown to to hate the word bromance, but it, it's a good descriptive word. It's um, the friendship, the strong friendship between our lead Gorky character. 
and the the cooler motorcycle riding neighbor who uh, who tries to teach him in the ways of women and it it really becomes very much about their relationship and uh, and the strength of that and it's um it's a very very cool film and that's directed by Mel Dembski uh written by Noel Black who also brought us Skater Data. Hey, great little short film that we saw at a place we won't mention because it was probably in the, the Donut Do Not Talk About. Yeah, it was at the movie marathon. It was, yeah, it was a little short we got one time. And Dude, it, that's a good I'm never getting you to um, have an uh, alibi for me if I need anything. <laughs> oh, Doug, the oh, Doug, Doug was, was not at the body. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he was just holding the shovel while I put the guy in the car. <laughs> He also directed Pretty Poison, which is probably a film that we might want to talk about at some stage, with um, which has Anthony Perkins and Tuesday Weld. It's a um, a very nice sort of uh, reverse psycho type movie. Ooh, well, um, we could do Anthony Perkins and movies that riff on Psycho because that'd be an excuse to talk about Psycho Two, which is <laughs> one of the, my favorite sequels ever. Yeah, I agree on you. Agree I with that. You go in there and just find that crap but uh, no i went in there was very very surprised by it so yeah that's that's an awesome film well those those are my three so doug what you got well i i was tossing up a few but since we're on sequels i think it's worth mentioning ninja 3 the domination yeah, um, yes it is even though yes it is. uh skeet already mentioned that on his twitter account that i watched that but um yeah i got to the end of friday and i just needed something uh, brainless to rewatch that uh, would be incredibly rewarding and insane, and uh, it just so delivers. It oh, uh, is, you know, we we watched a film last night, um, Death Machines, that has a a <laughs> you know Gonzo opening fifteen twenty minutes, and you're like, this is fast moving, this is insane, this is great, and then just becomes the most turgid nonsense. Um, but Ninja Three just uh manages to capture the best of 80s excess um from explosions to um ninjas killing cops to uh flash dance ripoffs and hairspray and everything else and i um yeah i don't have a lot intelligent to say about it and probably neither did anyone involved with it uh it, it proves the maxim uh, as show don't tell what uh, the fact that it's now uh, show kasugi it's uh yes. hey. Ooh. It... <laughs> you've been saving that one up i bet you have um... <laughs> from friday when you mentioned that you were watching <laughs> Canon Ninja movies uh, with our regular get together, our, our Friday oh, flicks. Yes, the we wrong did, way we did, round. We did it first. We did Ninja Three first. We did uh, Revenge of the Ninja the week after, and Enter the Ninja the week after that. And it proved that Enter the Ninja, despite being a huge hit, is very, very dull in comparison to Ninja Three: The Domination. Ninja Three: The Domination, it, it just fires everything at the wall, and most of it sticks. It is, oh yeah, it's just it's... joy and sanity. I mean, ninjas fighting people on a golf course, and the punching through the tip. top of a cop car. <laughs> it's yeah, there's flying swords, and there's it's it's it's, it's Ninja uh, Revenge of the Ninja is great in its own way, and it really holds up pretty well. It's got a great final fight scene on top of a building, and it's supposed to be in one city, but it's obviously 
filmed in Canada or somewhere similar because it looks nothing like wherever it's supposed to be filmed. I forget the details. Well, they have Arizona license plates, so I thought it might have been shot there. Unfortunately, nothing compares to Ninja 3. That's the problem is it's such a... It's just such a, a, a film of everything. I mean, you've got Flashdance Exorcist. It's just... Uh, there's, yeah. there's so much in that movie. Yeah. I, it's I literally it's high on the list of films that are sequels that I've never seen the original two and feel zero need to see the original two. Um, right next to Troll 2. No, yeah, yeah. you don't need to see that either. When you uh, tweeted, uh, well, sent a message saying you were watching it, I literally was about two seconds away from getting my own copy and watching it. And I ended up watching Challenge of the Tiger instead, because that's just about as fun. Oh, and, I do love Challenge of the Tiger, which is one of the great Bruce Lee movies. Oh, yeah, Bruce Lee, L-E, no, extra E, fantastic. Yeah. And then my wife turned up home from, from work. She's an essential service, so turned up home just in time to critique the uh, the topless tennis scene. Uh, I and, have uh, not seen this movie. Is it on Tubi or...? Um, I have I, it on DVD with a double I feature with For Your Height Only, the Wang Wang film. But I, oh, gosh. You will see this yeah. movie at some stage. <laughs> Excellent. I will be patient then, or, no, or yeah. try at least. Um, so one, to go from the ridiculous to the sublime, um, I will... I'm Okay, I'll go with uh, The Grand Bazaar, which is a film by a stop-motion animator named Jody Mack, who uh, came to New Zealand a couple years ago and did a workshop at New Plymouth. Uh, and I went down there, and, and she's amazing, and she does this kind of avant-garde flickery stuff but um unlike a lot of people who work in that medium has kind of a sense of humor and play to her work and um she's mostly done short films and uh the grand bazaar is her first feature clocking in at just over an hour it's barely a feature but when you see it it's like well that's a feature length amount of work because uh it's a lot of stop motion based around textiles uh and set to pop music there's no dialogue um but it's almost like something like um lemonade or something like that and just being sort of a long kind of musical meditation but it's about textiles and international commerce and all this stuff and you can read it that way as kind of a mediation on how we encode signals uh and uh understanding into weaving in that or you could just be like there are lots of pretty colors that flicker and this is amazing <laughs> and uh it, and it is just a um, movie is a international 30 films 30 days uh, service MUBI and they do a seven day free trial and uh, it's on there for 28 or 27 more days now and it's the sort of thing that you could just start watching and within three or four minutes you know if it is or isn't for you but I'd say even if you're a bit avant hesitant that it's worth giving a go to and even though it's a globe trotting film one of the um, most fun moments simply involves her making a stop motion sequence with um, four pillowcases and her washing or um clothes washing machine uh and setting that to pop music and there's all sorts of weird little beat remixes there's a um remix of the um skype tune do 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 and 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 so there's a lot of ideas that i think she builds into it but she builds it in such a playful way that you can just coast on the play of it and um super gorgeous and and totally the kind of thing that um you can kind of dip in and out of attention wise in a time where attention is maybe at a premium um the last one i'll mention uh is uh buchanan rides alone which is Ooh, uh, yes yes uh, have you seen that one skeet 
I have not seen that one. That does not jump out at me. So I'm working my way through the uh, Bud Bodeker Randall Scott uh, box set, which I think I might have mentioned last time as well. And uh, Randolph Scott is a performer I'm really growing to love because um, he's in, they did a series, I think six Westerns together, and this box captures five of them. I don't know why the sixth isn't in there, either rights issues or it's just not as good or something, I'm not sure. But um, the first one I saw is Ride Lonesome, in which Randolph Scott plays a very um, bitter uh, character. And, and most of the films I've seen in, him in in this cycle um, play on the darker side of characters and his performance style. Uh, and they're all about 75 minutes and very propulsive in their storytelling and very fun. Um, fun's not always the right word, but a very well-drawn complex moral universe around where usually he's the stranger entering this situation and everybody is sort of a tweak on a familiar type where it's kind of, it, it seems like in another movie, they might just be, you know, very black and white moral things, but there's always some unexpected hues of gray and Buchanan rides alone. Randolph Scott sort of reverses um, his character. And it's just this, he's just this super fun, happy go lucky guy coming home from um, Mexico where he's killed shitloads of people, but he doesn't seem particularly bothered by it. Uh, and he just wants to get home and, get this claim to this land he he wants to buy and he just stops into a town and everything would be fine except everyone in the town is a dick and <laughs> so i and have had so, so much problem with that in the past we've all been there we've all been there yeah. <laughs> and, and, and if they, if not looking at you twizel <laughs> you have your twizel i have my timaru you know it's all it's all a rich tapestry um but uh you can and um and you know and he they they let him they charge him ten dollars for everything and he just kind of rolls with it and with a grin on his face and um then somebody rolls in and kills a man uh, very deservedly so, um, and just because he's there, they decide, oh, we'll we'll hang him as well. And so he just spends the whole movie like either with a noose around his neck or a gun at his back or getting led out to the desert to be killed and just kind of smiling through it all and occasionally like killing a couple people unexpectedly. And and so it's just a really fun western ride. Uh, yeah, and uh, it's definitely been one of my favorite uh i i've been really glad i've been working my way through every entry in that set because there isn't a um they're all bangers you know there's no duds in that box yeah i'm not a, a big western fan but i did oddly enough uh comanche station is one that's of the, the one i haven't the... watched yet that's the next yeah one. that's the great box, we, so. i played that at one of my 24-hour uh movie binges a couple of years ago and uh, just i thought i'd throw in a western because i hardly ever do westerns and yeah, once again, about seventy odd minutes long, and that's a fantastic watch. So I was I was quite impressed with that one. As I say, I, normally if it's if it's on this, this is like a, a classic, you know, good, bad, and the ugly, etc. Westerns just don't jump across my, in front of me and go watch me. But uh, yeah, I would probably if if it's as good as Comanche Station, I would definitely have a look at that. Yeah, yeah I'd but say Bessica is uh, he does essentially they're sort of no frills westerns. They uh, nice and uh, they're nice and quick. They're down and dirty. They it's have a little bit of grittiness, but it's um, a lot of it's hung on Randolph Scott and his performance, and it, they're just great. 
they're all all good. Yeah, definitely throw that one in there. Um, shall we pivot to uh, the reason for the season, which is uh, <laughs> yeah. the recent passing of Mr. Stuart Gordon? And uh, we've, uh, I suspect you've prepared earlier for us a little background on the man who had an office at Disney and made Reanimator. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I've did, done a little bit of research on uh, Stuart Gordon because uh, we are, all, as we said earlier at the start, massive fans of uh, Stuart Gordon, of Reanimator, of uh, definitely a couple of his films that are in that horror genre. And for me, one of his ones that is seriously outside the horror genre, Robot Jocks. Uh, he was born in 1947 in Chicago and started making experimental theatre uh, when he, he was at university, at the University of Wisconsin in the sort of the late 1960s. He founded the Organic Theatre Company in 1969 uh, with his wife. And first play they put on was your classic Richard III. Uh, and had to move that to three different venues because they kept getting harassed by local officials in the town of Madison, Wisconsin. Town of? City of? I don't know. City of, I assume. Uh, small city, large town. Small city, large town. Nice. There you go. They did uh, a number of notable productions, including the world premiere of Sexual Perversity in Chicago by David Mamet. Uh, which um, I haven't seen a lot of Mammoth, but that's a great title, uh, I would have to say, especially in 1969. Have you seen uh, Glengarry Glenn Ross? I don't think I ever have. It's one of these ones that's been on the, on the back burner on one of my lists for a long time, but um, just kind of dropped off sometime and never got back on there. We might need to do a Mammoth crash course for you. Oh, yeah, there's some great <laughs> Mammoth. House of Games is great. It's the of... Yeah. Great. Anyway. Well, I... Looking forward to that. He also, the, the company that he had actually had a couple of sort of notable names. Dennis Franz was one of his, uh, one of his actors and writers. Uh, Joe Mantanania. Uh, and uh, the creator of Hangri uh, Hedwig and the Angry Itch, uh, John Cameron Mitchell, was in the, car wow. uh, in the company as well. Oh. Uh, one of the ones they actually did uh, that uh, in, became his first film was uh, one called Bleacher Bums, which apparently is about... Um, I'm guessing about baseball because it sounds odd to me being a, a Kiwi, but Bleacher Bums, they actually taped that, uh, the production of that, and it became his first TV uh, production in 1979. And he then wrote a, a play for a HP Lovecraft adaption uh, for Reanimator, which started off as a play script, and then he turned it into a 13 episode TV script. Uh, and was told that there was no way that was going to happen, uh, that it was going to be too expensive. So he revised it into a film, which was made in 1985, and shot it for $900,000, and it's now, of course, one of the the classic uh, Stuart Gordon cult films. Of course, 34, 35 years later, that are still getting played and loved by people around the world. Uh, he was, uh, at that stage, he became... Uh, working partners with Brian Usner, who was his producer and has been was his producer for decades after that. Uh, they apparently during this during Reanimator, the special effects uh, crew were kept busy because they said that they used twenty four gallons of fake blood to make Reanimator. I mean, the average they used was two gallons. So uh, they kind of knew something interesting was going on there. That was it was very over the top, as we've all seen with Reanimator but it really, really worked. And then, of course, he went on to make a lot more adaptions of H.P. Lovecraft, but I'm going to just go through his, uh, his filmography, if you like, because it's, it's quite interesting, because he's, he doesn't have the longest filmography in the world. 
And of course, uh, some of his uh, films definitely step outside the norm. When you think of Stuart Gordon, a lot of times you think he's a, a straight up uh, horror director. And he did start off with The Reanimator in 1985, did From Beyond, his second uh, Lovecraft adaption in 86. 87, he did Dolls, which is the one we saw about four o'clock in the morning on one of my 24 hour movie binges, uh-huh. which is a little kind of a little compact, quite intriguing little horror movie. Uh, which unfortunately being four o'clock in the morning, I put on the wrong time. So I'm going to have to go back and watch it again. But I remember liking it until the time I fell asleep. And then in 1989, he did Robot Jocks. And Robot Jocks is a comedy sci-fi Cold War involving stop-motion robots punching each other, Um, which, as you can tell, was one of my favorite films of the the 1989 uh, era because it's just a fun film. It really doesn't take itself seriously. And he continued on, Pit in the Pendulum, Fortress, Castle Freak, Space Truckers, which, as I say, is... Well, yep, that's that's really outside the norm. I've got that. I haven't watched it. I've been meaning to. But it does start... Oh, Charles Dance has a great performance in, in <laughs> that. He's he's a great villain in, in Space Truckers. I highly recommend... Well, just for a fun a fun watch, I think, is... Exactly. So he was pretty prolific all through the 90s with these uh, films there. Got to two thousands to Dagon, uh, and then it started to slow down from there. So, we did two episodes of Masters of Horror, uh, The Black Cat and Dreams in the Witch House. Pretty much that was it. He did Stuck in two thousand and seven was his last real feature film. Then there was uh, a couple of compila- uh, compilation film for Full Moon Video, and he after that was basically back to theatre. And he kind of brought it all full circle by doing Reanimated the Musical in 2011. <laughs> <laughs> one one thing you haven't there. mentioned is Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. He oh, was he, did, the... he didn't direct, but he did write, didn't he? He did write it, yeah. And that's what earned him the uh, House of Disney uh, lot. Because <laughs> uh, his, his title for it was The Teeny Weenies. And he was actually going to direct it. And then he started getting these terrible nosebleeds. And it turned out that he was having some kind of high blood pressure. And it was basically like, if you don't reduce your stress, you'll die. And so uh, he decided he'd rather not die and passed on the directorial helm. And obviously other people made a great success off uh, that film. But it gave him enough... Uh, juice to get an office at Disney to develop other ideas, which he mostly used to develop really incredibly disgusting films to make with Charles Band and Brian Yosna <laughs> instead. Well, but I did want to mention also that um, one of the films you skipped over is one I quite like called Edmund, which is um, stars William Macy and was a script by David Mamet, which came oh. out in 2005 and is a little dark character piece uh, with Macy as a, um, yuppie um discovering his very dark side uh and so that's a definitely a gordon deep cut worth checking out right, that's definitely what i hadn't heard of so that's why i just uh, popped over that one into into the last uh, ones that we've been talking about for pre-record but, the uh, only other um tidbit i wanted to mention was that uh during his tenure at uh wisconsin he um, was arrested on obscenity charges for the production of peter pan they did there i haven't quite <laughs> found out how? I, I, I don't have a lot of clarity, but as he said it in his interviews, he's like, yes, that's true. So if anyone tells you I can't get arrested, that's not true. Um, <laughs> so it's, oh, it's clap, your, clap your blank if you believe in... Uh, well, actually, uh, here we go. I found something about it. Quick search. Peter Pan became the leader of a group of hippies and yippies. Captain uh-huh. became Chicago Mayor Daly. And the pirates became the Chicago police. 
we left all the James Barry dialogue intact. So when they went off to Neverland, they sprinkled pixie dust on themselves, and, that, and off they go. That was an acid trip visualized by a psychedelic light show projected on the bodies of seven naked young ladies. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Okay, honey, I shrunk the kids. It's uh... (laughs) Disney, Disney friendly, family storytelling. So, um, so yeah, I have heard the wonderful ice cream suit. I haven't seen it, but I've heard that that's a a a, a great sort of far out kids movie that is um... adapted. So he that was one of his uh, plays from the sixties, which he adapted in nineteen ninety eight. Uh-huh. Oh, Ray Bradbury short story. Right. Yeah, so um, it's um, for um, just an extra for experts for you, for you uh, listener out there that um, might want to see if you can find that one. And if so, um, send us a link because I'd love to see that one myself. <laughs> <laughs> right. So should we talk about our first uh, film? We're going chronologically, I believe. So yeah, three- I'll, I'll introduce 1987's uh, From Beyond. I've I've written little synopses and backgrounds for all of these um, just to get us started. So, From Beyond. When Crawford Tillingast is found with the decapitated corpse of fellow scientist Edward Pretorius, Dr. Catherine McMichaels takes it upon herself to prove that Crawford's tales of extra-dimensional life may be more than the ravings of a madman. But it doesn't take long before they find themselves in a very sticky situation. Reuniting Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton from Reanimator and adapted loosely from the H.P. Lovecraft story of the same name, Stuart Gordon traveled to Italy to shoot the film on the sound stages of Dino Chitta, named after famous producer Dino De Laurentiis. As with Reanimator, Gordon faced major censorship struggles, bringing From Beyond to the theaters with an R rating, in part because of his interest in adding S&M to Lovecraft's famously sexless writing. <laughs> Lovecraft's story from Beyond would later be adapted in 2013 as Banshee Chapter, which I haven't seen. I don't know if uh, that's crossed we either did years try that. later. Yeah, we did. We watched that, I think, uh, on a Friday flicks when no one else turned up except Darren. So, oh, yes. I don't, yes, yeah, I do remember I that being inflicted upon me. Impressed with it. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was kind of dull, is what I came right. up on that one. So, you know, your, your mileage may vary, internet, but yeah, we... I couldn't give that a thumbs up. It's it's pretty middling. So what did you guys think of From Beyond? I've always loved From Beyond. I've seen that mm-hmm. a couple of times now. This is the only one of the three films I've seen before. It packs an awful lot into <laughs> 85 minutes. It, it does really not does. muck around. It's and there's a lot of uh, lot of slime and KY jelly, and it's sort of... Uh... I literally would love to have seen what Barbara Crampton's face looked like when she was handed the script and going, well, here we go again. <laughs> that guy that she can't have been that down on it. She, she actually did a, a Playboy shoot uh, around the release of From Beyond themed from where her uh, character goes in here. I guess we should explain briefly that one of the things that the Pretorius, it's not called a device. Do you remember what it's called? The machine that they he invents? Oh, the, um, uh, yes. The Pretorius I, resonator. Yes, um, yes, resonator. It stimulates that's the, the growth of, of the pineal gland in the brain. And this is from the uh, Lovecraft short story. And um, in this film, it stimulates it so far that it will burst out of the skull. Um, and, <laughs> and have so, a look around, too. It's yeah. Sort of, yeah. It's curious. So Gordon expanded that to also stimulate the um, sexual impulses uh, in that uh, leads Barbara Crampton down some dark alleys and Ken Forey into some confusing moments. It was great to see Ken Forey in this, by the way, as the cop yes, who accompanies them yeah. to the uh, he's, he's always a house solid actor. slime. 
<laughs> Dawn <laughs> of the Dead he's most famous for, I think. Yeah, that's where, where most people probably would, would uh, have seen him. But he's a very solid actor. He's, I mean, normally a, you know, a good, good uh, supporting actor that, you know, he's, he's very reliable in, the, in his roles. He, he doesn't, you know, half-ass at any of his films, no matter what the film is from what I've seen of him. One thing I think that's notable about this film in the context of these other two is the tone. I think it's in tone it's the most like Reanimator and has a Absolutely. consistent kind of playfulness to it. Um, I've got a book here called Filmmaking on the Fringe, which was by uh, Maitland McDonough, and it's uh, from the mid-90s, and it's interviews with um, all sorts of directors, from Frank Henenlotter and Zalman King and Joe Dante, Sam Raimi, uh, and Stuart Gordon is in there as well. And he says something in there, and this you know, is right around after he's made Castle Freak, and he's like, I've realized that you can make people laugh or you can scare them, but you can't do both at the same time. And I feel like that's actually true about both Reanimator and From Beyond is that neither of them are very scary movies. But I don't think that's a bad quality. I think that, you know, he has a real special tone in those two films that the other ones we talk about uh, don't capture in the same way. I don't don't know that they even try to capture. These these two uh, have a sort of heightened sense of reality. It's um, which is very, very cool. And um, it's just a lot of fun. And I suppose the thing is that the the visuals help tell that as well, because it's uh, what we're seeing is so weird and way out there and goopy. And so much fun with the lighting as well. Oh, Um, yeah. The color scheme and the the very purple color scheme. It's very, very 83 neon around there, but it it fits it really well. I mean, it's not a, a dark, dank horror film where you you know everything's lurking in corners it's just everything is brightly lit so you get to see all the effects which you know for for a practical effects gorehound is is great i mean the closest i can find to it than a non-stuart gordon film is peter jackson's brain dead because it's that amazing practical special effects the the movie itself is not scary for a zombie movie it's much more in that that weirdly dark comedy light-hearted version of horror and even though, I mean, there's some horrific moments in this one, it's not one you would be sitting there with somebody who's scared of the dark going, oh, I've got to leave now. You know, they might leave if they've been onto body parts protruding through foreheads and things. But this had to be an influencer on Brain Dead. On oh. It's uh, had to be. I don't Just... think timing wise that actually checks out, though. Was it Brain Dead in the. Brain Dead in the yeah. 90s. Was, uh, oh, was it that late? Okay. Yeah, Brain Dead 93. Yeah. He says off the top of his head, I'll probably get corrected, but I'm sure it's 1993. Well, you'll probably get corrected, but it's. Um, <laughs> but it, yeah, definitely, it was definitely after From Beyond was made, so I think that's the main point there. I was close, 92. There you go. 1992 in New Zealand, so. Okay. Oh, I should have that I was in one of the first screenings of that, so <laughs> I went to see that pretty much day one it came out. Okay, yeah, that makes more sense. I, I always get um, the order of bad taste, meet the feebles, and brain dead mixed up. I can't believe he went straight from brain dead to heavenly creatures. <laughs> I don't know yeah. if it was a direct route. It's, uh... Well, 1992, 1994. There's actually, in the Stuart Gordon interview, he mentions uh, that he went to Sitka's um, and talks about, um, you know, it's like those old cowboy movies where they say you're the fastest gun, but someday some punk is going to show up and he's going to be just a little bit faster with you. I had that feeling at Sitka's. I met Peter Jackson who made Brain Dead. I'd always thought the reanimator held the all-time 
record for blood spilling. We used 30 gallons of fake blood. So I asked Peter how much blood he had used, and the answer was 3,000 gallons. This young <laughs> punk was just a little bloodier than me. I guess it's my turn now to use 6,000 gallons or 60,000. Um, and there's a great little footnote which mentions uh, heavenly creatures. It, critical hit. It's a change of pace that bodes well for Jackson. With that, uh, obviously the writer having no idea what would happen after that. <laughs> Yeah, he did well for himself. I'll give him that. You know, did a couple of yeah. small films about you know, about hobbits, and uh, yeah, <laughs> <He> done well. <laughs> but back to From Beyond, it's um, a, a little bit of an IMD factoid to uh, to throw at you. Uh, in mention of Barbara Crampton and um, her, uh, whether she was fond or not of her S&M gear, she uh, later sold the leather dominatrix outfit she wore in that film at a yard sale. <laughs> that that's a yard sale I wanted to go. You know, just, okay, no. Ooh, ooh. honey, yeah, I found something for you. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, looking through old videos. The uh, it's, uh, oh, you've got the splendor here. Oh, the SMA, the dominatrix suit. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'll give me ten bucks for it. Cheers. <laughs> but I, I think you're bearing the lead, which is that she saved it after the film and brought it home from Italy. Yeah, well, apparently Stuart Gordon did. He, he he said he wanted Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton because, quote, they'd been in uh, Reanimator and they knew that there were things I was going to ask them to do, which was going to be a lot easier to direct rather than getting uh, someone brand new on the set and then say, can you just hop over there? I'm going to cover you in KY Jelly and have someone grab you from behind. Yeah, that, that might take a little bit of persuading with an actress that's never been on a Stuart Gordon set before. And it's probably why Barbara Crampton is one of those you know, stock players in, in Stuart Gordon film. She's and she's there in quite a few two of the films we've seen just this week. Uh, she's been in. Yeah, and she she's, came. She came back again for uh, Space Truckers as well. Oh, Not nice. there was as much. Uh, I presume there wasn't as much gore in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, um, I've got some more here. The let's see. Uh, Doctor Pretorius's character is named after Doctor Septimus Pretorius. Henry Frankenstein's former teacher who seduces Henry to the dark side. Ah, there, there's the influences on the sleeve. Dr. Block is named after Robert Block, so he's the author of the novel upon which Psycho was based, and also a, a good friend of writer H.P. Lovecraft. So it's, have, you, uh, it's, have you read the H.P. Lovecraft? Because I've, I've only read one. I've read In the Mountains of Madness. But he, he can be a bit of a slog, I've got to say, some of the HP Lovecraft. <laughs> There's a lot of um, darkness. I've read a couple short stories, and I haven't read this one. But it just, like, he just pours on the ambient dread and misanthropy with a ladle uh, in his made-up town of Arkham, Massachusetts, and uh, Miskatonic University, which features here. And that's yeah. pretty much his style. Is It's more a... it's. It, it's more about the atmosphere. It's um, according to this, the the original story for From Beyond was only seven pages long, and I, I believe it was uh, simply the first part of the movie. So the first sort of five minutes of the film is the uh, is the story of From Beyond, and then Stuart Gordon just went and made up the rest. And, oh, his, and strangely his, enough, this is not the most liberal adaptation of these three. <laughs> Hey, but you can you can take a seven page story and make an amazing film out of it. I mean, Stephen King's Trucks became Maximum Overdrive, and that's amazing. <laughs> right, I'm I sorry, you're breaking up there, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, five episodes in, and I've kicked off the podcast. Well, well, never. <laughs> 
you were going to do uh, a bit more of a Lovecraft dive as well, Darren. Did um, anyone w- want to vouch for any more for From Beyond before we get into that? Uh, well, there's uh, the address of the house in um, in From Beyond was six 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 Benevolent Street. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, that's 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 always a good sign. <laughs> Perfection, literal signposting. <laughs> oh, and uh, according to Brian Usner, the production ran out of money before the effects on the finale could be finished. I think they did pretty good, good work on that finale. It's worth it. noting that Brian Usner went on to do Society. Uh, which I haven't seen yet, but is is famous for a flesh melty finale, and um, you can see like how hanging out with um, uh, Gordon on Reanimator and From Beyond must have whetted his appetite. Uh, one thing I noted as well was that uh, apparently they hoped that they'd have fewer censorship challenges because they had slime instead of blood, uh, and so that after Reanimator being so famously difficult to get past the censors, they're like, oh, we'll just make everything slimy, and so that way it won't be as gory and. It- didn't quite land that way <laughs> yeah you're much much more family friendly when you just cover your actress in slime yeah <laughs> <laughs> also Ken well this underwear probably got uh the senses a bit <laughs> yeah that that scene where he runs down the stairs and nothing but a pair of wife fronts is is more horrific than anything else that appears. <laughs> <laughs> I, can I think imagine that's a that perfect on <laughs> i think that's the perfect note to end our coverage of <laughs> always end on a classy note <laughs> <laughs> Now, in terms of a, a deep dive of H.P. Lovecraft, so Howard Phillips Lovecraft, known chiefly for his creation of uh, what became the Cthulhu mythos, the many, many stories, The Call of Cthulhu, Rats in the Wall, at The Mountains of Madness, Shadow Over Innsmouth, Shadow Out of Time, these were the, uh, the stories he became famous for. He was born in Providence, Rhode Island. He was never famous in his lifetime, which is a shame. um, I believe there was only one novel uh, or one novella that was published before he passed, and that was Shadow Over Innismuth. He did have some of his short stories published, though, I believe, in magazines. Oh, that's, that's true, but he wasn't very well known. Yes. Before he died, and he only he died at the age of forty six, so it's uh, he didn't have a, a great innings there. I've skipped over a lot, especially to avoid the um, the racism that uh, does come out within his uh, stories. He even wrote essays that are, are quite quite nasty about. Uh, well, I, I don't wish to go into too much further on that, but um, he wrote these short stories that have just been. We keep coming back to them over and over again. Yeah, I think one of the things is that because it's um, public domain now, it's a very easy thing for people wanting to make um, horror movies or games. Um, I just was looking through the Wikipedia entry for Lovecraft, and there's a section on games that says, Lovecraft has also influenced gaming despite having hated games during his lifetime. (laughs) (laughs) Not a video game guy. Okay, cool. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, you know, they didn't exist. But, but, you know, there's there's a great Cthulhu um, tabletop game. There was the Cthulhu presidential campaign, you know, why vote for the lesser of two evils, and so on and so forth. And then, of course, the uh, Necronomicon, which is used as a MacGuffin in the Evil Dead films. So... Um, his fingerprints are everywhere, but I think we'll talk about some of that more a bit later. 
Absolutely. I wonder if there is it's simply a list out there of what um, H.P. Lovecraft hate, hated. Did the list uh, somebody liked is way much shorter. <laughs> didn't like games. Uh, people wearing Coffee socks. Easy hated. <laughs> small yappy dogs. Laughter. Rainbows walks on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> These are a few of his least favorite things. <laughs> General happiness. It's just none of that. <laughs> we need to make Lovecraft the musical. And uh... <laughs> oh, he didn't like singing. Okay, so it's hip hopper. Let's move on. Shall we say everything in a major way? Okay, so we'll move on to Castle Freak. So, yes, the 1995 film. When recovering alcoholic John Riley unexpectedly inherits a castle in Italy, it seems like the perfect opportunity to take his traumatized family overseas for a fresh start. But not only is he a naive fool to think that European travel can make up for killing his son and blinding his daughter in a drunk driving accident, but there's a resident of the castle who's been long waiting to set, be set free. Castle Freak is a very loose adaptation of Lovecraft's story The Outsider, a first-person tale of a lonely resident of a castle who has never seen his own visage. Gordon got attached to the movie after he went into Charles Band's office and saw a poster for a movie called Castle Freak. He asked Band what it was about, and Band said, oh, yeah, there's a poster, and maybe it'll get made. And Gordon got excited, and Band said, as long as there's a castle and a freak in the film, you can direct. <laughs> uh, so Gordon took that, uh, took the Lovecraft story, um, added the entire plot about the family inheriting the castle and coming overseas, and uh, demanded that, that he get a low budget so he could do it free of censorship. And uh, shot the film in a castle that Charles Band himself owned. Uh, and then the film has, in fact, been remade and was due to premiere uh, the 16th of April in Chattanooga. Uh, but I'm presuming that that was a fatality of uh, our current global situation. Yeah, as we I, had a look at their, I had a look at their website. They're, they're still hoping to do the Chattanooga Film Festival, but it is apparently being uh, postponed until such time as people can gather in public places again. So yeah. interesting that that's only about four days away from where we're recording this. That this would actually have had its premiere, uh, which is I only literally found out about that this morning, just uh, doing some last minute research. So, yeah. Um, so yeah. So it's same planet, different worlds. I mean, we've got Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton again, but um, the first forty five minutes of this film, especially, plays it surprisingly straight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not. It's not one of the the looser, more fun adaptions it, it really is much more serious off right off the bat it's very much more grounded definitely it's um despite being called castle freak yeah <laughs> that's the title despite... got the money but uh yeah it's it's i it doesn't it feels a lot more lurid than that than the, that as you say the first half of the movie actually is it felt like a 70s like british or italian film that was set in a castle without much lighting i mean that's one of the first things that jumps out after from beyond is how expressionistic that film is and this feels almost like unlit that's the the film own uh films of the of the mid 90s they were going through financial difficulties so i mean he got a half million dollar budget for that and that was as much as he was ever going to get because they were seriously in some financial shit if if you have a look at a chronological history of full moon features. They start off shooting on film and there's some beautiful productions uh, from the, the late 80s, early 90s, really well shot. And then through the mid 90s, 
they are dim, they are dingy, the, pl- the budgets have plummeted. They're normally shot in a castle because Charles Band owned a castle that they could actually shoot in in Italy. Right. So they would shoot in this castle, save money there. And then suddenly there's this almost a hard cut and you're into the home video years and everything suddenly brightens up. It's all about the practical special effects. It's, it's, I've got a, a whole compilation DVD of Full Moon productions and it's it's done alphabetically so you're suddenly going bright vhs dingy <laughs> as hell bright dear dingy bright dingy this one really for me feels right in that we are in serious financial trouble we might if this doesn't work we're we're gone because it just it feels so low budget compared to from beyond especially it just feels like he had nothing to shoot with it was just we've got this castle we've got our actors we've got a special effects but we can't really show it because the lighting's not great. It's you can tell this. I struggled with this movie quite a bit. Yeah, I, I think everybody did. Um, I looked up the director of photography because I was like, who is the guy that didn't bother to light any of this? And um, his name was Mario Volpiani, and he was like actually quite a big deal in the '60s and '70s in Italy. He worked on Dillinger Is Dead and Le Grand Booth and The Great Duel and collaborated with a postmodern painter on these experimental films. And the final sentence of his Wikipedia says it all. Um, Starting from the 80s, Volpiani focused into less ambitious works. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you get the impression of somebody who is this young gun who's just like, uh, where's the next paycheck coming from? Uh, That'll do. Let's move on. Um, I do think it's interesting, though, to watch um, Combs and Crampton really commit and dig into the drama even though i don't love it as a film it's it you know because so much of combs in particular is kind of like in this nicholas cage bruce campbell register of histrionic thing that to see him kind of get a bit serious for that and, and engage with the actual trauma is an interesting choice yeah, yeah, and I, I thought he was really good at playing severely damaged. And if we haven't explained it to our listener, it's uh, Jeffrey Coombs' character was uh, uh, drunk and driving his uh, his daughter and his young son home one evening and um, accidentally crashes the car, blinding his daughter and um, killing his son in that one action and his wife, uh, Barbara Crampton cannot, will not forgive him for it. It's uh, and they, they really do play out every aspect of that drama and of that pain. As, as you were pointing out earlier, it's interesting in a film that with its poster, which the poster tagline hideous, hungry and loose. And it's showing the blind daughter on the, on the poster is it, does not gel with how they they advertise this film. They advertise this as a straight up horror, and for forty five minutes, the castle freak does not feature into the film. A little pre credit segment, and for forty five minutes, that creature is locked away, and the, the plot does not revolve around it. Mm. So it's it really, as I say, if you picked up a VHS box in the nineties and seen Castle Freak, you would have put that on. I'm pretty sure a lot of people would have been quite disappointed. I've I've found online there's people that love this film, like I love Reanimator. But I personally just don't really see it myself. It, it it was for me it was a grind to get to that halfway point. 
Yeah, well, I mean, you wonder if Jeffrey Combs has had his hearing damage in the accident as well, because some of the plotting is so hoary. Like, he's just looking at a couple pictures, and his slow-moving blind daughter leaves the room and goes halfway across the (laughs) castle. And he's got, like, a photo album with, like, six pages in it. (laughs) He's very committed to looking at that page, yeah. (laughs) It's Incidentally, the daughter um, is an actress named Jessica Dollarhide, and and I looked thought about that name because of course dollar hide is the name of the uh killer in manhunter right yes yeah and so i was like is that a euphemism and she never appeared in anything after this so i looked it up and um no she actually just uh, and she quite enjoyed working on the film um but she just decided to go into education and so she never did anything else but she loved working with Stuart gordon so it's um it's great to run into people who like, yeah, I acted in a few things and it was fun and I moved on and aren't, you know, like bitter and tortured and living (laughs) off um, their brief brush with fame. But, you know, then we have this, as you say, we do have this very sharp inflection point in this film. And I, I think in some ways it makes it even harder because the film that it turns into has one scene in particular that's just so unforgivingly gross and mean-spirited, um, which starts with... I, I, I was in Italy last year, and I was in a number of small villages, and I think their view on the plausibility of um, local prostitution as a successful enterprise in villages of that size is somewhat off-beam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the, the, the prostitute character when she gets introduced, and it's kind of, well... Here's our exploitation element starting to creep in. But, uh, yeah, it's... You have no idea as to how far it will go, though. It's... It's, Yeah, there's... there's Once he gets into those gore effects, you know, he he goes for it, even though, as I say, it's not well lit. So the the gore effects in those early films compared to this are are not ones you're going to be looking at going, well, that's amazing, because half the time you can't see it. But, I mean, you're opening gore effect when the castle of himself tears off his own thumb to escape man oh, is, is something yeah. that I thought I was watching thinking, well, Darren's going to be loving this scene because I know. <laughs> How right you are. I wrote down the words uh, gory as fuck. Is, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to be fair, he eats the cat and somehow the cat comes out bigger after having been eaten. So, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's 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 yeah. There's a few scenes where you're just kind of going, well, that's that's they're working with the limitations of the budget, and when they they've got those effects and they they really go for them. But it's it for me, it just doesn't feel like the the gore effects and and from beyond because in from beyond everything had a purpose, and here it's kind of the purpose is to try and gross you out, and just the sound effects, the crackings and things like that, as along with the visuals. So as I say, I could hear Darren cringing from across town. I could yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You can hear his couch just going backwards. Thump. Oh, you're, oh, not, no. you're not wrong. You're not wrong <laughs> at all. It was a, a lot of uh, looking through my fingers and uh, hiding behind my elbow. It's, um, but it, it, I actually, it's. I clearly liked this one more than you guys. Um, maybe because of the how difficult I found it to watch the gore, I got very more up. Uh, more deeply invested in Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton's story, and um, and I um, 
yeah, found found it more emotionally quite moving, especially by the end. I felt genuinely moved at the end to the uh, where it where it went wow. to. Yeah, but that's uh, that's. I, me. I mean, I'm sort of halfway between you guys. I think. I mean, I wasn't as. Um, I mean, it sounds like Skeet was act- actively spiteful towards the film. <laughs> <laughs> this was on. Uh, I I binged about half a dozen seven or eight movies that day, so. I started off with West Side Story. I did Vivarium. I did the three Caballeros before I did Castle Freak. Oh, that's and perfect. What a yeah, double feature. That's a double feature. <laughs> for and I followed that up with Zombieland Double Tap just to, to have something a little more fun because I just found Castle Freak was, it wasn't for me a fun film. It was, it was to be endured rather than to be enjoyed for me. And it, I just it, don't think it's trying to be a fun film. It reminded me, of, like I said, of those kind of 60s, 70s, like kind of, very serious haunted house films um, for the most part with then just a few outlandish out of control moments. Um, but it, fe- it felt like if, if I watched Castle Freak and Re- Reanimator or From Beyond Back to Back and you asked which one was made first, um, I would have just assumed that, you know, it was Castle Freak. It, it does feel like an early effort. It's, it's, and I'll say, I think that's budgetary. That if he had the, the huge budget that he had, or bigger budget, four and a half million that he had for for Reanimator, he could have done a huge amount with that. But it, it really felt a lot of times it just felt like he was just for me just filling in time until he could get to those those scenes. And it, as you say, other people will really love that 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 serious drama at the start of it. But it was not what I was expecting from a movie called Castle Freak. Well, yeah, I suppose I suppose for me it's just I didn't know what to expect. It was the the second out of the three. I, uh, in fact, I watched Dagon first, and then went to Castle Freak, and then watched From Beyond as the last one. So I did reverse chronological order. But um, I, yeah, I'd, I quite enjoyed it, and I think it was the the drama that really pulled me in. By the uh, by, the last ten minutes, I, I wrote down uh, some jumping and exclaiming of the word shit. Is, uh, <laughs> with, which is what I was doing, not what the film was doing. Not the film. No, I, I don't remember that scene. So. <laughs> it has a reasonably decent standoff uh, at the end, although I and it, and there I think there are some genuinely creepy moments in it. And I think that thing I said before about you know the fun and the um, scary not being able to exist at the same time. I feel like he's digging into that and being like, okay, in order to kind of make this scary and and you know the idea of having a a blind person and then having this other person in this room in this castle which is old and has all these weird sounds and she doesn't really know um i think if you can get yourself to tap into that kind of gothic spirit of it um there's there's i can see that it can also be very tricky to actually get yourself to commit into that spirit which is kind of an older hokier sort of storytelling i think there's also uh, it's um one thing i think uh, in terms of stuart gordon that connects these three films is definitely he he does go for the sexual these there's that very sort of kinky adult highly sexual moments in all of these three films would that be a fair assessment and definitely uh, yes. reanimator. <laughs> yeah, definitely, yeah. It's that's that would definitely be a signature for Stuart Gordon is sex, without doubt. 
and that's that's where the HP Lovecraft fans, you know, didn't, you know, were up in arms because, as I said, they were they always thought HP Lovecraft was very asexual to the stories, but. He was when you say up in arms, you mean they wave their tentacles? Yeah, they wave, yes, they wave their little arms <laughs> at, at them. But uh, yeah, there was a, a lot of the uh, the. Uh, sorry, I get myself in the words in the right order. Uh, Stuart Gordon just said he always found a sort of a, an undercurrent in the, what he'd read there, so he just played that up fairly seriously. And I mean, if you had an '80s movie like Reanimator, that classic scene, of course, where Barbara Crampton is strapped to a table, is you know. If they, once they got into something like Fangoria magazine, that sold tickets like crazy. So, uh, it's, I remember I remember actually seeing pictures of it back in the eighties and just kind of going, "What is this?" Because of course Fangoria loved putting the pictures, not of the plot, but of the special effects and and the actresses. So, yeah, that that stuck in my memory pretty hard. That was the first thing that got me to go, "I might have to go and rent this movie." And yeah, my my mind was was changed for the better. <laughs> Well, before we move on on this one, it's uh, another little uh, fact chunk for you to digest. The uh, the uh, the film was blessed by the Vatican for fears of the effects on its viewers. Oh, okay. You say blessed by the Vatican. Blessed yes, by the Vatican. blessed by the Vatican. No, what I does could that have prayed even... that I wasn't quite so bored, but that would be nice. Do they give a they give a special sacrament? Do they take the negative to the altar? How does that work? I'm I'm afraid that the uh, the fact on uh, the IMDb page doesn't go much. <laughs> doesn't have the details on it. But that's some research you'll need to do there, listeners. So <laughs> I, I feel like that's probably one of those things that they probably like rates up there with like. You know, we will not give you a refund for this movie if you have a heart attack during it. So sign a waiver in front. Oh, as you think it was a William that, Castle type thing? I do, yes. But um, well, we'll, well see. If, the, if the Vatican can bless a movie to prevent it affecting people in a negative way, can we send all of Adam Sandler's films to the Vatican <laughs> ASAP and the Rob Schneiders? Okay. Because I, I thought you were going to say cats. <laughs> cats. No, I don't think you could do anything with cats. I think that would turn the Vatican <laughs> evil, literally. There, there are some things in this world that are too strong for religion, trust me. <laughs> cats being one of them. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, well, it's. Uh, I think that brings us to... Uh, facts or is it Dagon time? Uh, well, before we get to Dagon, what about a uh, just a, a brief look at films based on the works by H.P. Lovecraft? I'll go on then. Yeah, okay, so, um, well, let's start. So there is, uh, we'll start alphabetically. So there's Banshee Chapter, Beyond Reanimator, Bleeders, Bride of Reanimator, Call Girl of Cthulhu, The Call of Cthulhu, Cast a Deadly Spell, Chill, Color Out of Space, Cool Air, Cthulhu, Cthulhu, The Curse, Dagon, Dark Heritage, Die, Monster, Die, The Dumb Witch Horror, From Beyond, Grammar, it does say grammar. It's an episode of The Twilight Zone. H.P. Lovecraft's Dreams in the Witch House, The Haunted Palace, Howard Lovecraft and the Frozen Kingdom, In Search of Lovecraft, Innismuth, The Last Lovecraft, Relic of Cthulhu, Lamora, The Lurking Fear, Necronomicon, Out of Mind, The Stories of H.P. Lovecraft, Pulse Pounders, Reanimator, The Resurrected, The Shuttered Room, The Unnameable, The Unnameable 2, The Statement of Randolph, The Void, Whisperer in Darkness, Witch Hunt, and Within the Woods. So, so that's the list. I, I missed out <laughs> Castle Creek. <laughs> so it's, it kind of gives you an idea that uh, 
it's quite prolific in terms of this has captured filmmakers uh, it's imagination uh, it's i'm sure we'd uh, it's doug would you want to mention color out of space a recent oh yeah well i mean that's um initially i thought that we might uh I was going to propose even before Stuart Gordon's death that we might do a series of Lovecraft adaptations in honor of the uh, theatrical release of the very truncated theatrical release of Color Out of Space <laughs> that uh, happened here, which uh, played at Terrify last year before that. And I really um, enjoyed the return of Richard Stanley to the uh, big screen. I recently watched um, Lost Soul, his, the documentary on the making oh, yeah. of, Ives, of Dr. Moreau. And uh, it gave me some perspective on him and how um, how still actually young he is after all this to only be kind of in his fifties, despite having been, you know, a young or a um, horror legend in the eighties from Hardware, uh, and then to fall into the, the catastrophe he did there. But Color Out of Space is such a um, committed uh, return. But it's interesting again that it has Nick Cage o- occupying a very Jeffrey Combsy kind of. Uh, milieu of being sort of straight but i mean at this point it's like you know Combs might have been there first but nicholas cage owns it of the um <laughs> actor who you cast just because of how they pronounce alpaca um and, <laughs> um, and, and the yeah, fact, um, nicholas cage was the main reason they, it was going to be llamas or or some sort of farm animal and, less interesting i'm thinking sheep or goats or something and like he that. demanded it be alpacas yeah and he got to say alpaca a lot. So he knows his comedy. Oh, yeah. yeah. Alpaca's <laughs> a funny word. <laughs> yeah, so it, hopefully... Every um, time he mentioned it, it was hilarious. They have the same distributor for that film as for uh, Come to Daddy, which is one of the films that's on the Academy Cinema's new on-demand site. So I'm hoping the color out of space uh, follows it um, in due course onto uh, on-demand so people in New Zealand who missed out seeing it in the theater can check it out at home because it does have those beautiful blues and purples that you see in from beyond and it has the flesh melting brilliance that you see in from beyond and um yeah it, it it's probably the most like from beyond actually out of all of these albeit with more of the tone shift that you see in castle freak from normal to really weird uh, and uh, apart from that i mean i've seen uh the dunwich horror which is um a great uh kind of 70s use of extreme solarization filters all the time and um a bit more styly and nutty than dour but it's got a heck of a uh, cast i tell you sandra d dean stockwell and ed bigley uh, I mean, that's, that's I a pretty cool film. Together, but yeah, and the poster for it, uh, I will put up uh, because the poster is absolutely balls to wall amazing. So, um, uh, it does, you know, just mentioning that on a on a completely non visual podcast, but uh, look in the Twitter account. <laughs> I'm going to put that up. Oh, you should see it. It looks so oh, good. It's amazing. It's... Look at look at it. <laughs> look at the colours. It's um, <laughs> one that I'm particularly fond of. I remember stumbling on when I was a kid is uh, cast a deadly spell. So it's not a direct, it's uh, it's using elements of H.P. Lovecraft. So it's uh, Fred Ward is the star. He's a 1948 hard-boiled private detective, H. Philip Lovecraft. And it's set in a uh, fictional Los Angeles where magic is real, monsters and mythical beasts stalk the back alleys, zombies are used as cheap labor, and everyone except Philip J., uh, H. Philip Lovecraft 
uses magic every day. And yet cars, telephones and other modern technology, they also exist in the world. And the whole thing is tied together by a evil, uh, an evil guy using the Necronomicon. It's, uh, and it's, and that's a, it's that a fun brilliant. film. It's David Warner's the bad guy. Julianne, Julianne Moore, Moore is the love interest. Yes, Clancy Brown's in there as well. It was directed by Martin Campbell, our very own. Yeah. Oh, there you go. And I've got to say, one thing you glossed over there was you mentioned Call Girl of Cthulhu, uh, which I've just looked up, uh, <laughs> as you can probably imagine. <laughs> I thought you might pick up on that one. <laughs> 2014, uh, rating a massive 4.6 on the Internet Movie Database. When a Virginia artist falls in love with a call girl, she turns out to be the chosen bride of the alien god Cthulhu. To save her, he must stop an ancient cult from summoning their god and destroying mankind. And it looks... As you um, do. Interesting. It does have a character called Rick the Dick Pickman. (laughs) So, um... Uh, I'm looking that one up tomorrow. Thanks. Thanks for the recommendation that you didn't give me. <laughs> There's even yeah. a kids' film in this slot. There's Howard Lovecraft and the Frozen Kingdom. They've made three of these. <laughs> three wow. of them now. I've heard of them. That's like I had heard of that. for kids. <laughs> Sentences that you didn't think made sense, but apparently do. <laughs> Jim Henson's Muppet Old Ones. Excellent. <laughs> Oh, I would pay much of money to see that. <laughs> I didn't do no. a um, deep dive into it, but I know that there's um, a ton of uh, people who have tried also to bring other Lovecraft adaptations to screen. I think Guillermo del Toro is the most famous because he's wanted to do At the Mountains of Madness for ages um, and got pretty close a couple times, I think, but it's never quite been able to pull together the budget. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard of any other um, filmmakers that have dream Lovecraft projects that have never uh, taken flight. Not off the top of my head, no, but I have heard that about Del Toro trying to get that done for a while. Whereas, as I say, I haven't been the one that I've I've read. That'll be an interesting one if he could ever adapt it because it's it's all about the journey. I mean, it's one of these ones that I get the feeling, you know, a lot of times H.P. Lovecraft likes to say that when something appears that it's complete, it, you, I could not describe it for you, and so he doesn't describe it. So. Trying to trying to adapt an H.P. Lovecraft story like that is would be uh, would it be a hell of, hell shoot I tell you because it's all set in you know basically the the most inaccessible places in the world so um, uh, you know if he shot it on location you know good luck but <laughs> well thankfully we have Spectrevision out there who are um, planning to do a a trilogy they started with Color Out of Space and I believe oh they that's are. right they're doing another one aren't they yes so that's Elijah Wood and. Uh, Daniel Noah and Josh 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 C Waller are makeup Spectre Vision. So we're very very thankful that they're out there bringing us HP Lovecraft as well. Oh, I see. Yeah, it looks like Dunwich Horror might be their next uh, uh, target. You can make a nice interesting comparison by going the seventies one versus this one. So hmm. mm, we'll bl- block that in for twenty uh, twenty three if movies ever <laughs> exist again. Exactly. <laughs> A good they but sad all... point made. <laughs> um, well, at least we have the entire history of cinema up till now to lean on, so you know we won't be entirely bereft. Um, speaking of which, shall we move on to our final film? Oh, the let's Dagon do it. From 2001. Yes. Yes. And so, uh, when two couples shipwreck off the coast of a small Spanish town, their only hope for rescue lies on land. But it turns out there's something fishy about Mboka, a town whose residents worship the undersea god Dagon. 
Despite the title, this film is not based on the short story Dagon, but rather Lovecraft's novella The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Shot in Spain, where longtime producer Ali Brian Yuzna had recently set up a production company, the film is dedicated to veteran actor Francisco Rabal, whose screen credits in addition to Dagon also include films for Luis Bunuel, Antonioni, Pedro Almodovar, Jacques Rivette, and William Friedkin in Sorcerer. Um, one of the things I think that's consistent about all three of these films is that Stuart Gordon, regardless of how much budget he has, uh, reaches for special effects that are beyond that budget. Uh, yeah. And making this is by far, I think, probably the highest budget film. Uh, it's the first which doesn't have Jeffrey Combs. Uh, a young actor named Ezra Godin takes his place wearing an orange miskatonic sweatshirt, mm-hmm. which is the only um, reference to that uh, that we get during the film. But, um, yeah, it's in the uh, early 2000s. And to make an aquatic-based film, which leans hard on CGI in the early 2000s, is a dangerous proposition. Yeah, sometimes um, those, those early CGI's just take you out of the film because they are, you know, they're very obvious CGI's. Where you, think, you know, there's so many seamless effects these days that sometimes, you know, I overly excessively used but when you're sparingly using cgi in the the 2000s you've got to kind of put your head back 20 years to say that would have looked amazing 20 years ago so i've kind of um started things off on the back foot on dagon by kind of making fun of it but let's but actually what did you guys think of dagon in terms of these other films and where does it sit for you well for dagon for me i what i can clearly see is how much stuart gordon loves hp lovecraft stories because it it feels the most Lovecraftian of all all these three. Exactly this, what that, I was going to say. Yeah, exactly. it's uh, it's it's deep down in the tentacles. It's um, <laughs> it's got the it's it's gooey. It's um, it it has a um, a hotel room that is not going to get a good Yelp review. <laughs> it's, uh, I think I, I did, did write, write down, down worst that, bathroom yeah. worst bathroom in Spain was the note I made on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not a five star for that one. But uh, there's just a, a great sense of atmosphere the whole way through, and it, and it has a lovely sense of nothing happening and then build and build and build and build, and um, the the violence was way past my uh, oh, yeah. uh, that, that, my ability to withstand. It's uh, the the face off was uh, I wrote here was a little much for me. Yeah, and it's not taking his face off. It's taking his face off. It's li- yeah. After it's, they'd already stripped a, his arms. Oh, oh, it's just a full on. I mean, people talk about torture porn, and but Ooh. that is just that is a horrific scene full-on horror and i mean this once again this is not a it's not a movie that completely takes itself seriously all the time there is some nice little bits of comedy but there you do need to be prepared for some full-on practical prosthetic effects uh, yeah what i found uh, really uh, really interesting and quite a, a quite a different thing for a movie was so mu- there was so much desperate diy the uh, the time where the our hero was uh, desperately trying to put a lock back onto a, a door by uh, by getting a screwdriver and screwing in the in the lock into the door so he could hold off the the hordes of uh, slimy tentacle um, uh, PlayStation 10 
uh, villages. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's and they did it a couple of times. They do about three three times in the movie, and it was such an unusual Swiss Army knife. Yeah, it's kind of a chase movie, uh, basically. I mean, it's you know, it's the the, the to give a, a quick pocket summation of the of the plot is you've got our main character and his girlfriend and their uh, girlfriend's parents, isn't it? It's girlfriend's parents uh, on a a yacht off a, a coast of Spain. And due to some circumstances, which I won't spoil because the opening of the film, I think, is fantastic. The uh, hero ends up alone on an island where the villagers are basically turning into fish people. That's that's just the, the pocket summation of it. And that's where these special effects start to come in. But as we were saying earlier, it is the most Lovecraftian film because you don't really get to see these fish people for a start. Not because of budgetary restraints this time, but because they're just kept in the dark. They're... You know, mm-hmm. people in the background with torches. You get a glimpse here. You get a glimpse of somebody, but you don't see anything from the, the neck up. There's, you know, you get a glimpse of some tentacles here and there. And it's it's really, really well done. I mean, it's definitely this is out of the three films, From Beyond is always going to be my favorite of these three. But this was a, a really nice surprise because it was a later mm. film that didn't have the, the massive budget of some of, you know, the films around that era, but just did a huge amount with the budget. And Absolutely. And the tone and, thing uh, is relevant too compared to like Color Out of Space, which again has a similar like goes for the comedy thing. And I remember watching Color Out of Space being like, I'm enjoying this a lot, but would I enjoy it if it was more Lovecraftian? And the and there are a few comic moments in Dagon. I mean, some of the you know, some of the physical um tension that you're talking about with the um pocket knife and stuff leads to some humor um but it's much it's more grounded or there's like the scene where he meets eugenio and there's the long flashback that explains the history of how the worship of dagon overtook christianity in this village and it cuts back to present day and (laughs) it's uh, and our our hero's reaction is uh, is a good um tension deflating laugh line that gets us (laughs) Um, back in back into present day. Well, Absolutely. Ezra, oh, sorry. Apparently, Ezra Gooden. When I'm looking, when it first appeared, I went, "Oh, we've we've got the kind of the, the low budget version of Jeffrey Combs." But apparently, he based his performance on Harold Lloyd. So he was going for more that that, wow. that kind of that nebbishy character, sort of thrown into a, a a circumstance that he can't control. And that's where apparently he he saw his inspiration for that character from, which um, for me worked quite nicely. It was he was. He was the kind of hero that you know is just surviving because of luck, and you know he's he's not going to be out there punching fishmen in the face. He's just trying to survive. Absolutely. And he, he yeah, I jump. really likes that. And one thing I really loved is that. Um, just getting back to the Lovecraftiness of it, he keeps going on this Philip of, oh, there's two choices, there's two choices. And, um, you know, and this this very sort of free will kind of thing. And it feels, for a while, it felt just like this bit of a screenwriter fl- throwaway character thing. Um, and then it eventually it's like, at the end, it's like, oh, actually, there's no choice. And uh, it's just <laughs> this kind of um, being pawns in the hands of the dark gods is such a... Um, you know, Lovecraftian uh, conceit. Abs- well, it's absolutely it. And what I what I wrote down my first note um, when I was watching Dagon was uh, not dicking around to wait for Lovecraftian imagery. It was <laughs> right up front. It's uh, the CGI is a bit ropey, a, a, which is a given, unfortunately for that time. 
when the film was made, but uh, they really go all in on Lovecraft. It's um, so much tentacles, so much of the the sort of um, for the opening images. It's a underwater um, uh, palace or some sort of out temple, outward, but, yeah, sort of an underwater temple. Yeah, it's. I mean, that's 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 where some of the CGI does work when doing the the backgrounds. Yeah, look fantastic, and they they blend nicely. I mean, some of the CGI, as I said earlier is obviously cgi which i mean it's not lawnmower man version you know of cgi that's that's not one that you just kind of go i'm stopping the movie right now this thing's just giving me a headache but it's it's pretty well i mean definitely the atmosphere around it is very very well done and using those, that cgi for those backgrounds really does help and there's and a lot of dreams in the the movie it's it starts with a dream there's a lot of mention of um of dreams and it has one of the most it has a payoff which i've found fascinating that um uh, the uh, our hero has dreamt of the uh, sort of mermaid vampiric um very very hot priestess uh and um and when they finally meet and he's it's um he, he tells her that he's dreamt of her and what have it it's, um, but it's he keeps saying it's just a dream. It's a dream, and she says a dream is a is a wish, which mm-hmm. is it is the most fucked up Disney reference I have <laughs> ever seen. Hey, that time on the studio backlot paid off. Because <laughs> of course the full refer- the thing is a dream is a wish your heart makes, which is uh, from Cinderella, I think, or um, Sleeping Beauty. But um, what she she says it in order to um, turns out that uh, spoiler here that she's actually his sister, and so but um, she is trying to uh, get out the Milton Bradley uh, new version of incest, the game the whole family can play. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. it's and it's, uh, yeah, that that scene there when when that revelation comes along, you just kind of go, oh. Oh, that was icky before, but thanks for that. <laughs> it, it was already pretty icky when you yeah. get the whole um, Room 237 shining moment as well, where yeah. um, he discovers um, <laughs> the, the less than human qualities of his new um, <laughs> lady friend. As as uh, I think uh, Fry said in Futurama, why couldn't the fish bit be on the top and the lady parts on the bottom? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, testify. Uh, <laughs> I, got that. I think another I... one of my odd double features. I watched this right after Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs Two with my son. He didn't stay around. <laughs> uh, but it, once again, interesting combo of those two. Uh, the only thing that really fitted was that there was a leak in both boats. So um... <laughs> yeah, it's um, right at the end where he he, as you said, he has no choice. It's um, I wrote down uh, what was it. Birds of a tentacle rip out your left ventricle. It's, uh... <laughs> you should be doing box covers for uh, for DVDs. <laughs> I wrote down that the ending would have been better if they um, used uh, the song Under the Sea with it. <laughs> <laughs> Darling, it's better where it is wetter. Take it from me. <laughs> <laughs> we enjoyed the film quite a bit, obviously. I mean, we haven't discussed this yeah. beforehand, but it sounds like we'll quite enjoy the film. It's, it's, it's definitely one of these movies that is a nice ride that you're following. It's, it's, you know, you do get invested in the characters. 
Yeah, and it's it's very very well made, and obviously, as you said at the start, a, a lot of love went into this this uh, adaptation. Absolutely, Agreed. it's and I think it's the one that I knew the least about. Uh, I had no expectations about this one whatsoever. It's um, and I just sort of went with it, went for the ride. I tried getting the um, uh, HP Lovecraft. I jumped online to grab an ebook of the actual story to have a listen to, and apparently everyone's locked down pretty severely because apparently I'm going to get in two weeks from this recording if I'm lucky. So um, excellent. Uh, uh, apparently the library system in Auckland is just a little bit busy at the moment because we're all staring at the walls for the next eighteen days or so. <laughs> well, nothing sounds better for. Uh cabin fever quarantine then curling up with a bunch of hp lovecraft stories uh, <laughs> mm. on that note uh shall we uh wrap it up um unless anybody has any closing uh did anyone actually watch the other Stuart gordon uh masters of horror which is his final ad, uh dip into lovecraft the dreams of the witch house i didn't get to that one but actually we haven't heard your opinion on dagon it's, um, oh, it's, okay. uh, Skeets and I have uh, have witted on, but um, yeah, I, what, I, what's your I, thoughts? I, I I wrote down at some point amiable time waster, which is a bit harsh, but it is to me. It felt like that kind of um, it, it's propulsive, and especially after Castle Freak in particular, um, I, I had a good time going with it. Uh, there was a point where I kind of started losing a bit of the drifting a little bit in and out of why is he going into this house? Why there, there's just a bit of, sometimes I feel like there's a bit of shoe weather of, we just need to get from one set piece to another. Um, but all the set pieces were fun and the, and the commitment, I, I say fun. No, that's not even remotely true because <laughs> uh, that, and, 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 you know, I mean, that uh, for the first 45 or 50 minutes, I'm like, oh, yeah, Sarah could have watched this with me. And then when, you know, we get to the face off scene, it's like, yeah, yeah. And yeah. There, I think there there is something that catches in the throat in every Stuart Gordon movie. I think that's almost the kind of thing that it has in common. And in some cases, it's so deeply enmeshed with the premise, um, like in Reanimator, where it's just so bloody or um stuck which we haven't talked about but the um prompt the premise of stuck is brilliant mina suvari plays a teenager who um crashes into um steven ria who gets physically caught in her windshield and so she just drives home and just like leaves him there while she tries to figure out what to do and so and he's just you know trapped stuck there and um and it's just such a dark comedy and there's this um great line in the middle where mina savara is like why are you doing this to me (laughs) (laughs) and 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 so i i feel like there's moments where that taste that for the dark and the perverse that Stuart gordon has really braids nicely with the movie and then there is you know dagon i i think there is that moment which really throws it and so that and the um the cgi and um keep it from being sort of top tier from for me but also i think there was a point where i thought it was over and then it kept going and i i kind of was veering away and then i came back into it it's like oh this is actually you know i think this is when he's going to the church with the gasoline Mm -hmm. um and then it starts um 
it gets more and more interesting as things get more and more complicated and yeah i uh, and i came away from it i think impressed more than i felt a lot of the time during it so that's where i sit with it i definitely recommend it uh with those caveats i will say in closing for myself that uh whoever digitized it for our amazon prime or prime videos that is over here might want to check the copy because i left the credits rolling while i was finishing up my last few notes and at the end of the credits the movie started again with no oh, audio. Is that? I can tell you. I can tell you what the deal yes. is. Yeah. Did that happen for anyone else? Or was yeah, it did. Yes, it um, happened for me. Oh, okay. uh, so I can explain this. So what? One thing that happens is when you provide films for international markets, um, the video files, you have to provide what's called a textless master. And so, uh, if there are elements on screen that have text on them that will need to be translated into a different language. You put it at the end <laughs> without text so that they could, for instance, uh, so that that opening scene credits I've read. It doesn't have the credits. If you look closely, it's just, it's just the imagery without mm-hmm. the credits so that in theory, somebody could bang that vision onto the start and then put, you know, Ayuhante or um, Jefe de Producción or whatever instead of right. uh, the English terms. But yeah, so they've just digitized that whole file without... Did cut it off. <laughs> yeah. Removed it. So nicely done, Amazon Prime. Well done. Um, yeah. Keeping an eye on films with yeah. you, because that was there's weird. Definitely I just looked, a simple... I looked at going, is, is this a post-credit scene? It appears to be the same one. Is it going to be a different... No, it's this. I recognize that. I, I don't get it. And it was very late at night when that happened. So, uh, yeah, thanks for confusing me, um, you schmuck. <laughs> <laughs> One thing we haven't mentioned is that the uh, it's the, the same writer for all three films. So oh, yes. it was uh, Dennis Paoli is the, uh, is the writer for um, basically m- most of Stuart Gordon's horror work is written by Dennis Paoli. And then his other films that aren't quite horror some of them are close, so written by other writers. And um, do you know anything about what he's done apart from uh, uh, Stuart Gordon's films, or not really? Does he not have... Uh, well, I'm looking at IMDb. He uh, he wrote Ghoulies 2, so good on him. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Spellcaster, Meridian, which I believe I've seen that one. It's another Charles band uh, that's uh, Cheryl and Fenn. Two American girls in Italy are drugged and raped by an evil magician and his twin brother who suffer from a curse that turn them into beastmen each day. One of the girls falls for the good twin and decides to help him break the curse. It's set in the same castle, I almost guarantee it. <laughs> Very like it. Yeah. yeah. And he worked on this, The Dentist, which was the, one of Brian Usner's films, in which he covered it with Stuart Gordon. So it's obviously they're just mates from way back that uh um write stuff together so that's uh that's cute that they just you know get together with charles band and made made all this horrific disgusting stuff so he's going to be in an upcoming documentary in post-production called celluloid wizards in the video wasteland the saga of empire pictures and book me in for that one (laughs) (laughs) okay then Actually, I was just noting that uh, both Stuart Gordon and Dennis Paoli and Larry Cohen were um, credited as writers on Body Snatchers, the Abel Ferrara version of 1993. Ooh, have you seen that one? 
Uh, that's not one I've seen, but that's a very interesting set of writers. I've yeah. I've heard some good things about it of recent. So, and well, sure we'll find some connection to to watch that at some stage. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. well, it's, it's it's the third remake in a series, so maybe we can find some others that are the third remake. Um, third remake in a series where they only use half the original title. So there we go. Let's uh, send us your suggestions for that one. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. I've I've been enjoying. There's quite a bit of Abel Ferrara on um, Amazon Prime actually from the mid '90s. So I've been starting to catch up with that. I watched New Rose Hotel, which is nutty and really fun. So, oh, um, okay. Yeah, and there's uh, oh, there's a couple others. The Blackout, which I've been meaning to watch. Uh, so yeah, I I'm I'm definitely I. Ever since I saw Miss Forty Five, I'm like I'll I'll check out anything Ferrara does, and even if it's a bit of a misfire it's not it's never less than interesting i think fair city's on there as well which is definitely worth a look oh i've never seen that one so that sounds uh promising as well cool well let's uh let's get off this call and watch some easter movies with horrible things happening in them because we are recording this on easter sunday who knows when i'll get it online but um for right now i'm going to go for a walk and i'm going to Go too far. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, socially distanced walk. Don't you worry. Nice. And I'm going to watch the second half of the Ten Commandments, which I'm watching on my 65-inch TV at the moment. It's uh, it's uh, Easter. Um, it's a tradition that uh, I've uh, done for many, many years. Is watch uh, e- uh, Eastery, religiousy type movies, and this is certainly one of them. And I'm going to be playing an online game of Dungeons and Dragons, where I'll be DMing, and there will be zombies. So we've got the whole coming back from the dead thing first. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking of doing Last Temptation of Christ because I've been doing a Scorsese deep dive recently, anyway. So, <laughs> well, you all, all take care and keep safe. No Talk worries. Bye bye.